thankful for the opportunity to bring this second lesson to you. Brother Steve Bazin was first uh, given this particular time, but we find that uh, Steve had some pressing matters. His brother's wife had a stroke. They were business partners, and he had to go and to uh, attend to that matter. He could not uh, travel. So I'm glad to be able to do the second uh, part of my first lesson, which I never got through. There, actually, I got through with about a third of what I had uh, prepared. Sometimes that happens at lectureships. You want to say so much about your subject matter. And the first lesson had to do with the book of Revelation. Because this was the source of my change. It's through the study of the book of Revelation that I began to change my mind. And as I was following Wallace's arguments in the early days, in the 1980s, notice that Wallace would still put the return of Christ in the future. I would come across the work by James Stewart Russell in the late 80s, preaching at the Benton Harbor Church of Christ, which I thought was intriguing, and he put the thousand-year reign in the future. And so although both of these men believed that there was a fulfillment, they still thought that something was yet in their future. Well, anybody who seriously contemplates the book of Revelation and comes to the conclusion that it is fulfilled, you have to have this thought. I don't see how you couldn't have it. It's inescapable. If the book of Revelation is fulfilled, how could there be another revelation outside of the revelation? Well, there really couldn't be. And so we go to the book of Revelation understanding fulfillment. Now, those who have come to fulfillment have understood the significance of the fall of the temple. Physical temple falls, the one in heaven is open. We looked at several passages in our last lesson concerning that matter. We looked at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. We noticed that there is only one city where Jesus was crucified. It was spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. Moses said in the last days she would be like Sodom, Deuteronomy 32-32. And in Galatians chapter 4, in the allegory of Abraham having two sons, Paul would argue if you went back to the law, you returned to Egypt. And so it is the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified, which is the only city that identifies as the spiritual Sodom and Egypt. The focus is Jerusalem. Well, as I began studying more and more, I, my curiosity increased about Revelation chapter 13, and especially this 666 man that is spoken about in the text, Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. So we notice that here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, 
6. And for a while I was satisfied with what Wallace said about this. That this is Nero. That is, if you add an N to Neron, Caesar, which he says is one of the names of Caesar, but if not, it's 616, and he said some of the manuscripts are 616 as well. But that made no sense to me. It either is or it isn't. Either it's 666 or it's 616. Which one is it? And the Greek text, which underlies the King James Version and the New King James Version, and Young's literal and the KJ3. And although I'm not a KJ uh, King James fan, because they many times uh, don't respect the, the tenses of the verbs, I am a fan of the Greek text, which underlies the King James Version, the TR. And that was 666. And I'm convinced that 666 is correctly set forward in the text. Now, those of us who have been studying fulfillment know full well that Jesus deals with the Jewish authorities and especially the Jewish high priest in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. And we're going to notice that Jesus is now on trial. He's asked whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. He answers in the affirmative. And he says... It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Brother Roy has done excellent work. And he has pointed out to us, this is the only text in the Old Testament, there's one, only one text in the Old Testament with the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, which is Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14, and if we have time, we'll get there. Now, I want you to notice what the high priest does when Jesus says, you will see. Again, he's standing before the high priest. And according to Acts 23, 1 and 2, he's the ruler of the people. All right? So he is the highest authority of the Jewish people. And he tells the high priest, you will see you're going to experience it. It's actually the plural. He's speaking before the Sanhedrin. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Now, as Brother Roy has pointed out, there's only one text in the Old Testament, right, where the Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, and that's Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I think Jesus knows the text he's quoting from. You think so? Here's the next question. You think the high priest knew the context? Yeah. Yes. He wasn't a dumb man. One of the most highly educated men in the world. And yet Paul said, your leaders and those that dwell in Jerusalem because they did not know the voices of the prophets which were read every Sabbath they are fulfilled in condemning him in Acts 13.27. Nah, they didn't know the spiritual application. Alright? So the high priest tears his clothes. Now the law says you can't do that in Deuteronomy 21.10. I'll, I'll tell you when we're going to the Old Testament in a minute. 
He has spoken blasphemy. He does what the law demands he never do. Something angers this high priest beyond control. He's out of control. He takes the garment and rends it in a fit of anger. What? Go to Daniel 7 now. Let's see before I start going to the Old Testament taxes. Uh, text about 666. Let's just go ahead and go to Daniel 7. Give me about verse um, 10 to begin with. There we go. And so we find verse 9, I watched thrones were put in place. The Ancient of Days was seated. The garment was white as snow. His hair head was like pure wool. The throne was fiery flame with wheels of burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands Times ten thousand stood before him, the court was seated, and the books are open. This is the great white throne judgment. That's what it is. The books are open for judgment. They're before the Ancient of Days. Verse 11, I watched because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. You see, there's a man in this prophecy who's called the little horn, and he's speaking. All right? And I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed. So he's the head of some kind of a beast. And the beast was slain, its body destroyed. Go on uh, in verse 12. As for the rest of the beast, they had the dominion taken away. If their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, their authority was taken away because they were about to be crushed. The physical uh, authority continued a while until the transition of the kingdom. Today, because we have a spiritual kingdom, nobody can take it from us. It's an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that transition was going at that particular time. So in verse 14, he says, Then to him was given the glory and a kingdom. There's only one kingdom that God has. Only one. And he rules in the hearts of men through the gospel. That all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, uh, the one, which shall not be destroyed. All right? Now, here he comes to the Ancient of Days. Now, Wallace said that's the Ascension. It's not the Ascension. And I'll tell you how we learn in Churches of Christ. Morrow used the phrase, the big dogs, right? Well, when the big dogs speak, people listen. And Foyle Wallace was instrumental in refuting premillennialism and also postmillennialism, which were the prevalent views until the 30s, until... Oliphant and Wallace started to root them out. He became editor of the Gospel Advocate. But a couple of years later, because he was so crass with his opponents, they set him aside. But Wallace, in his published book in 1966, said that's the ascension. And ministers all over the brother mimicked what Wallace said. A lot of brethren don't study the contexts they study the verses we're supposed to memorize. In Bible college, you know what two verses in Daniel 7 we're supposed to memorize? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And I put that together with Acts 1, 9 through 11. The problem is it doesn't fit with Acts 1, 9 through 11. He's coming to the Ancient of Days because he's delivering the kingdom to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. That's what he's doing. He's delivering it back to the Father. Now give me verse 25. Verse 25. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. 
and persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and the law. The saints shall be given to his hand for a times, times, and a half a time. That's the 42 months of the Jewish war of Revelation chapter 11. That's what it is. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Somebody's speaking pompous words. That high priest hears Jesus quoting from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and guess who Jesus applies the text to. Who's the man speaking the pompous things? Well, the Jews would never assume that's their own high priest, but that's exactly the application that Jesus makes. To him. To him. Now give me 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Roy, please. And there's only one second coming. And that would take place in the first century because Jesus promised to come in the first century. He had to come if he told the truth and he told the truth. And Mario made really good argumentation. I really appreciate that. It's a good lesson. I want you to notice now in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. Now, the gathering means one thing. It means resurrection. That's what it means. The gathering together of the elect. It means resurrection. So the coming and the resurrection are both spoken about. Not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. As if from us. There are individuals that sent letters out claiming to be apostles. They are the false apostles of 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13. And who are the false apostles of 2 Corinthians 11 13? In verse 22, Paul said, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. They are the Judaizers. Paul identifies the false apostles as the Judaizers. Now what do the Judaizers want to do? They want that law to continue. They don't accept that the temple's coming to an end. They don't accept the law's coming to an end. And they want the Gentiles to be circumcised. So if there was a day coming, somebody has to explain this. They sent out false letters as though the day of Christ had come. King James Version, they said, colossal mistakes in this text. Colossal. You know why? Because if it were, as the King James translator said, as if the day was at hand, different, different word altogether anyways, then there'd be a flat contradiction because in James chapter 5 and verse 8, the Bible says the coming of the Lord is at hand, right? Doesn't it say that in your Bible? In Hebrews 10.37, he will not tarry. He will come for a very little while. This can't be contradictory to what James said, what the Hebrew writer said. And V.E. Vine, in his dictionary of New Testament words, has an excellent commentary on the correction of the King James Version. As if the day had come. It's the same doctrine that said the resurrection is past already. They're concluding that there was some day. And perhaps he's talking about the day that Claudius expels the Jews. In Acts 18. You remember that Apollos, Aquila, uh, 
Aquila and Priscilla were there from Rome because they'd been expelled by Claudius and then Paul meets them there at Corinth and they're tent makers. Remember that text? Okay, so something's happened, right? A day has happened. And since the kingdom comes invisibly, the Judaizers are arguing it already had come. The resurrection's already passed. So it must have been reasonable for people to believe that the resurrection was in the first century. And that they would be understood in a, in a figurative way or in a spiritual way. Although a physical event had taken place, you see. Now, he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, that the love of the many will grow cold. And again, it would be a falling away, a great persecution. And 2 Thessalonians is written in about 52 AD, so 18 years before the fall of the temple. And here we have, then the man of sin is revealed. Now there's only one man of sin, and I believe it's that man speaking pompous words. And Jesus says to the high priest, you'll see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power on the clouds of heaven. He's speaking to him. All right? Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, I was taught, when I first obeyed the gospel, that was the Pope. Yeah. I preached that as a young man. He's the Pope. He's sitting in the temple of God. Who put the Pope in the temple of God? Did you put him in? Did he get baptized for the remission of sins so he's in the church? I don't think so. He was never in the temple of God. And I'll tell you right now, Nero never got in the temple of God either. He's not in the temple of God. But there's a man in the temple of God. And that temple is going to be destroyed. And that temple of God, of course, was the old covenant temple. And who's the ruler of the old covenant people? Who's sitting in the temple of God, claiming the voice for God? Why, it's the high priest. They're rejecting Jesus, the chief cornerstone, right, whom the builders rejected. And they're saying his voice ought to be listened to. And so he's sitting in the temple of God. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And now notice please verse 6. We're going to start there. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation and trouble you. Now, Paul writes to the Thessalonians who are being troubled. And here's the problem when we don't interpret Scripture with Scripture. When you're reading 1st and 2nd Corinthians, please read Acts 18 first. Because that's where the church is planted. When you're reading the, about the letter to the Ephesians, read Acts 19. You remember where, they, where Paul lays hands upon them and they have the Holy Spirit and they speak with tongues after they're rebaptized? Well, you're not going to understand Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 without that. That after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That was the miraculous operating of the Spirit. It sealed them as the guarantee until the return of Christ. So before you study 1st and 2nd Corinthians, if there is the planting of the church in the book of Acts, then that becomes the first source of your study. You're going to study the book of Philippians. Better go back and read Acts 16. 
And if you're going to study First and Second Thessalonians, guess where you should go? Acts 17, where the church at Thessalonica is planted. And guess what happens in Acts 17, 5 through 8? The Jews bring this persecution. And the Bible says in Acts 17, verse 8, they trouble the people. So the Thessalonians are being troubled. Acts 17 says it's the Jews. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. All right? But now notice, it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. The Greek word flipsis is used in both occasions. Here and there. Okay? And I haven't figured out even why the New King James Version uses a different English word when it's the same Greek word. That's why I like the literal concordant version. Problem with the literal concordant version is he quotes from the wrong Greek text. But the Greek words that he does translate are consistent. All right? So I want you to notice here what Paul says. He does use the same word, affliction, affliction. Oh, that's what it should be. Thank you very much. All right. Repay, uh, repay affliction with those afflicting you. All right. Now, they're being troubled, persecuted. Okay. The Jewish Christians being persecuted by their Jewish adversaries. And the gospel always goes to the Jew first before it goes to the Greek because it's their age. Okay. So they are being persecuted. And it's a righteous thing with God to pay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a wound for a wound, and a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot, and a life for a life. God's going to then bring that kind of persecution upon them. All right? And to give you who are troubled rest. Now, what good is it going to do to come in thousands of years when they're going to die? And Thessalonica is going to be burned up, you know, suffer earthquakes over the years, and now. What? There's suffering. And Jesus is coming with flaming fire. And to give you or trouble rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And they shall be punished with everlasting destruction in the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. And we're. When I was in Bible college, I memorized, when, when, you, when you study um, the Bible in Bible college, you don't really have time to study. <laughs> you don't. You take a lot of classes, you've got to memorize a lot of scripture, and you've got to listen to what the instructor says, that you can hear the arguments so the sound brethren, that you can identify with the sound brethren. I didn't study the scripture until I got out of Bible college. Not seriously, where I would take time and look at all the passages. I'm not. I wasn't told to quote verse six with verses seven through nine, <laughs> but that makes a difference, you see. Now he's coming in flaming fire. Give me Lamentations chapter two uh, and four and five, please. Now Paul, I'm pretty sure, comes from a Jewish background, right? He comes from a Jewish background. He's a rabbi, right? He's going to use the language that the prophets used. Because, now notice here, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. Brother Jack, there he is, he's bending his bow. I, I'm still so excited about that little line there, and you and Tim Martin put that in the book there. I mean, I preached a whole lesson on that. And I, like I said, I'll pay you double for your book if you want it, because it was, it, 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 it was uh, worth that. 
So here's the bow that's bent, and the bow in the book of Genesis is open. It meant peace. God made peace with the physical creation, right? Didn't he? So he's not going to burn it up anymore. All right, good. So he has bent his bow on his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleading to his eye. On the tenth of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Now what's the Lam- book of Lamentations about? Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, didn't he? Isn't he lamenting over the fact that Jerusalem has been destroyed in 586 B.C.? He warned that they wouldn't repent. Babylon came. And yet, notice now the language that he uses. He has poured out his fury like fire. And the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his, what? His tabernacle. That's the old covenant temple. As it were a garden, he has destroyed his palace, his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. That's how that language was used, you see. Paul is using the language of the prophets. He's coming in flaming fire. Now, if you're going to study with the futures, here's the next question. Well, Brother Hoger, they really don't call me brother anymore. <laughs> they just call me Brother Hoger. Hoger, that's to the Thessalonians. Jerusalem is destroyed. That makes no sense. We're talking about up in Thessalonica, Macedonia. We're talking almost you know, toward Europe over there. We're talking eight, nine hundred miles away from Jerusalem. How in the world is the coming of the Lord going to affect the Thessalonians by the coming in Jerusalem? Now, the Jewish leadership wants to promote the law. In Deuteronomy 16 and 16, the Bible says, three times in the year, all the Jewish males would come to the appointed feasts. Seven of those feast days are involved in the three great feast days. They all stay there from the Passover to the Pentecost, and then come back for the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Jewish leaders are in the city of Jerusalem. They believe the law is going to continue. Jesus says when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, you don't enter her gates. You're in Judea, you flee to the mountains. You're in the country, you don't enter her. These are the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. And so they would all go to Jerusalem that, that last feast day. So suppose you are terrorized by a motorcycle gang. Okay? You're living on a block, they're terrorizing you. But once a year, they all get on their motorbikes and they go off to Sturgis uh, where's it Montana South Dakota thank you I knew that John would know all about these nefarious uh, motorcycle groups <laughs> um, so they're there but they they get into a firefight with uh, the police and the FBI and the DEA and everybody comes on there and they got them around and they, just, they just maul them all down you know but they used to live on your block. But they don't return. Your block just changed for the good. You see. 
The leaders at Thessalonica who were persecuting the church all went back to Jerusalem for that last feast, you see. And they never returned. And Jesus said, you don't go in. And that's exactly how that applied to the Thessalonians. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, I'm not going to keep you too long today. Actually, half the congregation already left on me, so... <laughs> All right, so now in verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1, I want you to notice, I'm not going to do verse-by-verse verse work um, all through the text, although I'm glad to do it. I want you to just notice a couple of key ideas here. First of all, I stood on the sand of the sea, Revelation 31. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and horns, ten high, crowns, and his heads of blasphemous names. I want you to notice that the beast and the sea. It comes out of the sea. Now remember, there is a Palestine-Israel first emphasis in Scripture. Jew first emphasis. And they live on, in the land of Israel. Okay? So the Gentiles many times would approach by the sea, the great Mediterranean Sea. And yet, the prophets, when they spoke about the sea, they spoke about the Gentiles as we already cited. Give me Isaiah 60, verses 3 through 5. Roy, you're just great. Can you come and do work for me up in uh, Lakeshore as well? I appreciate that. I don't know if the Gentiles shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be nursed at your side. They will come to uh, the new Israel here. You shall see and become radiant. Your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea, King James has converted, turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. What happens when the Gentiles take their contribution and Paul takes it to the city of Jerusalem? The wealth had come, you see. They beginning to nurse at their side and learn about Israel's promises. And yet the sea would be converted, the Gentiles. So if you're living in the land... You're living in the earth of the land. And if you're coming from the sea, you're coming from the Gentiles, you're coming to the land, you see. Now, in Revelation 13, there is a beast coming from the sea. And I believe that's Rome, and I believe that is led by Nero, who dies in 68 AD. All right? And then four rulers will take place, and then finally Vespasian would be the fourth ruler who restores the power of the Roman Empire to put Jerusalem down. Well, let's go back now to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. So now I saw another beast coming out of the earth or the land. Yeah, right? So John sees two beasts, and they're working in tandem with each other. Right? And Rome is persecuting the church, no doubt about it. But Rome gives its power to this land beast to persecute as well. Now remember, when the Jews went to Jesus in John 18 and 31, they said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Right? So they had to have Rome's permission. And when Felix saw that it pleased the Jews, he left Paul bound. Festus did the same thing in Acts 25. You see, the sea beast and the land beast, they, they worked together. To persecute the church. One day, however, there's going to be a turning, and this harlot that's riding on the beast's back is going to turn 
And the beast is going to in turn eat her flesh and devour her flesh in Revelation 17. I think that's the picture of Rome taking Jerusalem and taking Judea and punishing the Jews. So I believe that this land here is the land of Israel. In Luke 21, 31, these things are coming upon the land. And then in that same context, the Gentiles were then trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And they're fulfilled in the last trump when everything was fulfilled. Now we live in the results of the uh, fulfillment. Now notice, this beast coming out of the land, I believe this is Judaism. Okay? So Rome is prophesied about, and yet there is also another beast coming out of the land. And he's going to teach pompous things in Daniel 7.25. I believe it's the same picture of the individual. Now notice, please. He had two horns like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Alright? Here's the lamb, the representative of Jesus. Right? He's the lamb. But he speaks like a dragon, like the devil. Right? He's keeping the people under the law. He's resisting the Messiah. He's persecuting the saints. Alright, keep on going now. So he exercises, verse 12, please. Um, thank you. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now remember, the Jews needed Rome in order to kill him. Alright? So whenever there was uh, this time where um, they were going kind of beyond Roman authority, that would cause concern among Rome as well. But he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence, causes the earth, the land, and those who dwell to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Now when Nero died, it looked like the empire was thrown into chaos. And then Galba and Otho, and then finally uh, uh, Vespasian, Vitellius, and then uh, Vespasian ruled from 69, I think, to 79 A.D. And during that time, the... Uh, the empire, the Roman Empire, re received its strength again to bring its battle back to Jerusalem. So when Nero died in 68, in about a year and a half, there were four other emperors that ruled. Can you imagine what would happen in the United States of America if in a year and a half we had four presidents? It would be mayhem. What was mayhem in the Roman uh, Empire? Would they ever have enough power to bring against Jerusalem to, to, to continue the judgment. He performs signs so that even fire comes down from heaven and the earth inside of men. I think this is the fiery judgment of 1 Peter 4.12. I think they were bringing the fiery judgment, killing men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast wounded by the sword and live. And of course, the, the high priest, until the zealots killed him and put in their own high priest, wanted to make peace with Rome. You remember the Jewish leader said in John 11, they said, the Romans will come and take away our power and our nation. They knew that they were puppets of Rome. They had to, and that's why they said in Acts 17, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish argument to the Gentile authority says, we have no king but Caesar. And if you don't persecute the church, you're no king of Caesar. That's what the Jews in John 19 said to Pilate, if you don't kill Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. Pilate doesn't want to hear that, or get that information back to Rome. No, 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 no. He wants Caesar to be his friend, you see. All right, now notice here. 
He causes both the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free, the slave to receive a mark on the right hand or on the foreheads, and I'm indebted to Brent Bishel's son-in-law for this next point. Give me Deuteronomy 6 and verse 8. How does he make a mark on the right hand or on the forehead? All right? You shall bind them, the law, right? The law. You shall bind them on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. So the Jews made these little prayer amulets, these little boxes. Have you seen these pictures of the, um, they're not really Jews. The ones in Jerusalem now are the uh, Ashkenazis from the ninth century anyways. Um, let, let me just skirt here for a moment and do a little, little extra teaching. Did you know that in Time Magazine in 1948, the Egyptian prince, complained that they weren't Jews who came back in 1948. He said, you left black, you came back white. <laughs> they're not real Jews, they're not. They're just not uh, the real Jews at all. The real Jews. Okay, I believe that they were darker skinned people. I think you can prove that, but that's another sermon. Anyways. So, he's going to bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Alright? So when you go to the Wailing Wall, you see at least the tradition, these guys, they got these these uh, things on their forehead and they're you know they're praying like a fire to keep the flame going and they have these little prayer amulets on his uh, on their wrists, on their hand, and on their forehead. And if you're a first century Jew, what are you thinking of? Who has the power to persecute you if you're living in the land? Why, it's the high priest does, you see. And the Jews holding to the law. So, I mean, I think that fits with Revelation 13. Let's go back to Revelation 13 now. And we're going to notice um, verse uh, 15. Yes, verse 17. And no one may buy or sell except who has the mark of the name of the beast with the number of his name. Now, you remember that there was a great persecution against the church in Acts chapter 8. And so they're dispersed. But the Jews have power. Did you know, and I didn't know this till a couple of years ago, I was reading from the Jewish histories, a couple of uh, rabbis, six rabbis wrote a book about the Jewish history. They say that there were five million Jews of the Jewish diaspora in the first century. He said there was nowhere in the ancient inhabited world of the Jews where the world hadn't felt the Jews' power. Wherever they go, they're hard to manage. Wherever they go, they've got power. They've got a synagogue. Wherever they go, they're a political force to be dealt with. Okay? And so they can persecute their own. Rome allows the Jews to persecute their own. Now when the Gentiles come in, that's another matter. But the Jews, they can persecute. They can beat them. They can whip them. If they get the authority from the Romans, they can kill them as well. All right? So this explains this. Now verse 8, 18, please. Here is wisdom, let him who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of many, is 666. So, some time ago, I said, I'm not satisfied with Wallace's answer here. I had the presumption that the answer was in the Old Testament. So I told Steve Bazden one Saturday morning, I said, I tell you what, you spend the day looking, and he, I don't think he looked the whole day like I did, but... <laughs> 
I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look, look up every passage where there is 660 and 666. So I spent about eight hours in the Old Testament reading, looking, writing down the notes that I get. Now there's more, but it didn't take really that long. By the middle of the day, I, kinda had, I thought I had figured it out. And rather than going to the geometry of the second century and trusting, you know, that Bible is here for a reason. There's no such thing as a verse that doesn't make any sense or, or a verse that has no purpose. God only does what he needs to do. Okay? So I want you to notice here real quick, and then I'll let you go here. By 1230, you're out. I'm predicting. But I'm not under the Old Testament, so if we go late, you can't stone me. All right? So I'm on. So please notice now in... Um, Yes, 1 Kings 10, 14, please. And I know, first of all, that there is this 666 talents of gold that comes to Solomon. And what is Solomon known for? Well, building the temple, right? He's got 666 talents of gold. All right? So that's going to be the land tax. He's going to build his house, going to build the temple with this as well. Give me 1 Kings 6, 14. 1 Kings 6, 14. The lowest, uh, uh, verse 14, yes. So someone built the temple and finished it, and he built inside the walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling he panels the inside with wood and covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Keep on going. Then he built, uh, then he built a 20 cubit room at the rear of the temple from door to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside the inner sanctuary as the most holy place. Now notice the 20 cubit room. Verse 17, in the front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. Now watch that. 40 and 20. What's the number? 60, right? Okay, and remember, 666, that's the number of the talents that were uh, accumulated to build this temple. And there are 60 uh, cubits long in this particular temple that's going to be made. Give me 1 Kings 7.15, please. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and the line of 12 cubits measured the cir circumference of each. Now, when you look at the pillars of bron bronze, 18 divided by 3 is what? 6, 6, 6, right? And now he says also a line of 12 cubits, separate of each, 6 and 6. 6, 6, 6, 6 and 6, 666 talents of gold. 40 by 20. I'm kind of seeing a picture of a temple here. That 6 is associated with this temple that's going to be built. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 12 through 14. So, the temple is going to be built now. Well, that's not very good. That's all right. Ezekiel 40, verses 12 through 14, please. I'm almost done. 12 through 14. All right, and so he says, and there was a space in front of the chambers, one cubit on this side, one cubit on that side. The gate chains were six cubits on this side, and six cubits on that side. So there's little, little, little chambers in this temple that's being built, and it's six cubits by six cubits. Six and six, right? All right, give me, please, um... Ezekiel 41, 1 and 2. Then he brought me in the sanctuary, 
I measure the door post, six cubits wide on one side, six cubits on the other side, and the width of the tavern. Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. And then you get the um, you get the 40 and the 20 again, alright? 60. Six and six and six. Now, if you're a craftsman and you have to keep the temple up to date, so to speak, you're going to know about all the measurements. Okay? I'm convinced when they heard 666, their minds were drawn to the temple and nowhere else. Because there's a man sitting in the temple of God claiming to take the position of God. Now give me um, 1 Samuel 16.4, please. So with Goliath, 16? Yeah, 1 Samuel 16.4, I believe that's it. Uh, no, give me 17.4. There we go. And so uh, a champion went out in the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, who was six cubits in a stand. Now he's an enemy. Six in a span. All right, give me Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made the image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits, an enemy of God. Okay? Goliath, enemy. Idol, enemy. Six, temple. Somebody sitting in the temple of God. I think 6 is a temple number. I think 666 referred to the high priest and everybody knew it in the first century. And those who trusted in the law, trusted in the high priest, those who trusted in the Messiah would leave their land. No longer a connection to the land. They fled Jerusalem. Did you know in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem when the armies first came against Jerusalem for some unreason, we find that the Roman general, um, give me his name. Cestius Gallus. Yes, thank you, Cestius Gallus. He retreats for some unknown reason, uh, Josephus said. It gave just enough time for individuals to flee. Now, if you packed your bags, the zealots would know that if you packed your bags, you would be killed. So you had to flee just with the clothes on your back. And they fled to Pella. 30-mile trek to Jordan. Pray that it's not on the winter or on the Sabbath day. And they had their lives and their salvation because they believed in Jesus. 666, the high priest. And Jesus returned, and let me say this, and salvation has been completed. Heaven is open. And if you're in Christ, you can never die. That's some of the best news I've ever come to. If you're slain by the gospel and you people I still believe you're slain by the gospel you're outside of Jesus he's got a covenant of grace and truth for you so believe in Jesus as the Messiah with all your heart repent turn from sins confess his name with the boldness and courage and submit to baptism where you're going to undergo something more powerful than what the children of Israel did when they came out of Egypt you are going to then identify with the death and a burial and a resurrection of Jesus in which you will walk in newness of life. And if you'll stay in Jesus, the covenant is so strong that you can never die. 